Mark chapter 10 this morning. We are not going to be in Hebrews. Mark chapter 10. Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist preacher in the in England in the 1800s, late 1800s, said in preaching that you find Christ in the text and you make a beeline for the cross. Last week as I stood before you and preached from Hebrews, there was a time in the sermon where the Holy Spirit expressly said, preach the gospel. Step away from your notes and preach the gospel. And I failed to obey Him in that moment. Now I'm not saying this to sound superstitious. I'm not saying this to try to create some kind of atmosphere. Um, I'm saying this because I've seen God do some things this week that has been amazing for me personally. And I don't want to ever get in the way of God working. I don't ever want to get in the way and be a hindrance to that. As we as preachers have a tendency to get in the way quite a bit. Um, I've... In preaching, I've gone. I've got really detailed notes, and I tend to be structured by those notes. And sometimes the um, you kind of you kind of restrict things. But nonetheless, th- this morning it's going to be pure gospel. It is going to be a gospel message that, no doubt in my mind, someone in here needs to hear. Th- this message is in part in response to some conversations that I've had with some folks. It's primarily in response to wanting to be obedient to the Holy Spirit and in my love and care for you as a pastor. And we need to hear the gospel on a regular basis. But I want to make some things clear about the gospel this morning. And so, in Mark chapter 10, if you would stand with me please. And this morning in Sunday school, I didn't look at the Sunday school lesson until this morning. And I've been thinking about this passage this week. And when I looked at the Sunday school lesson this morning, I was like, thank you, Lord. They, if you weren't here in Sunday school, you missed something. They just It's amazing to see how God puts those things together. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, Sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved or sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about, and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. 
And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And that is what I'm preaching this morning, is who then can be saved. Let's pray. Father, I've put much thought into this text. There's been study into this text. But God, if it is not accompanied by the Holy Spirit, it's worthless. Father, I pray that Your will would be done here today. Would You give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say. Amen. You can be seated. If you were to be asked to define the Gospel, how would you define that? The paperback Merriam-Webster definition would probably be, it's good news. And that would be, that would be correct. But good news about what? Good news concerning what? If I tell you I have good news, I'm implying that there's also bad news that may go along with that. And we wouldn't be wrong to say that the gospel is good news because the very word itself means good news. What else would you say? Would you define it as some will say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? And though the benefits and eternal the eternal benefits of salvation are glorious. On this life, we in this life, we struggle, right? We go through tribulation. We go through persecution. We, the Apostle Paul was beaten and stoned and, and, and all these things. How is that wonderful? If salvation is so great, how can one give their life for the gospel? How can that be wonderful? Would you talk about sin? Would you talk about that we are stand condemned before God? Would you talk about that we are in danger of God's eternal judgment if we do not repent and believe the gospel? You say, Brian, that's it's not very loving to talk about someone's sin. It's not very loving to, 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 to talk to each other about sin, is it? Actually, it is very loving. It's unloving to not confront someone's sin with the gospel in light of what the Scripture has to say. You say, well, the Bible says judge not. Yeah, in context, the Bible says that you will be judged with the same judgment that you judge others. In other words, if you judge in mercy, you will be judged in mercy. If you judge in condemnation, you will be judged in condemnation. You see, there's a difference between judging and a difference between being judgmental. Judgmental is to look down upon someone because of their status in life or their lack thereof. But judging is to to make some judgments, make decisions based upon the evidence that is presented before you. I want you to notice some things about our text today. Verse 17, we see this young man. When he was gone forth, they're talking about Jesus, into the way that he was traveling, there came one running and kneeled to him. Now, we see this and there seems to be some excitement from this rich young ruler, right? That he's coming to Jesus, he's wanting to ask him a question, and he approaches him in an excited manner. But notice what he does also. And he kneeled. He recognized who Jesus was, not as the Messiah, as we will see, not as the Christ, as we will see, but he recognized him as a good teacher. A teacher in the, in the Jewish custom, if someone called someone else a teacher, it was a sign of respect. It would be akin to calling someone pastor or teacher. 
that you recognize the gift that God has given to them to teach and rightly divide the word of truth. That would be a sign of respect. So he approaches Jesus and he says, good teacher. Now, Jesus didn't humbly say, well, thank you, thank you very much, and all that kind of stuff. What did Jesus respond? Well, who's good? Who is good? There's only one good, and that's God. Let me ask you this. If Jesus said there's one good, and it's God, do you believe that Jesus Christ is not only the Son of God, but that He is God? He's not just the Son. He's not just a Son. He is not the first created being, but He is the eternal Son of God as He is eternal God, as the Father is. So He says, good master. And Jesus responds, there's none good. And that's consistent with Scripture as we'll see in Romans 3. There's none good, no, not one. There's none righteous. We move on to verse 18, and Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. Look at verse 19. Thou knowest the commandments. This is a Jewish young boy or young man, a rich young ruler. The, 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 the title in the Bible says, they call him the rich young ruler. He's a Jew. He knows the law. He had been taught the law from an early age. He understands the Ten Commandments. And he says, you know them. What is the first one? Do not commit adultery. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that if a man looks upon a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery. See what the implication of the law is, is it goes beyond physical acts. In adultery, it's to lust after someone, to desire to have them as your own. What else does he say? Do not kill. You say, well, that's easy. I've never killed anybody. Well, have you hated someone in your heart? Have you had contempt for someone in your heart? Have you despised someone in your heart? Then you've murdered them. Look what else he says. Do not, do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Taking something that's not yours. Being dishonest in those things. What is the next one? Do not bear false witness. Don't lie about other people. Don't say things that are untrue about other people. And then the next one he says, defraud not. Defraud not had to do with wages. You don't hold back someone's wages uh, without a just cause. Then he says, honor thy father and mother. If you'll notice, all of those commandments have to do with our relationship with our fellow man. It's, it's a horizontal relationship. And look what the young man responds. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these I've observed from my youth. Every one of these I have kept from a young man. Now, in the Jewish culture, they have what they call a bar mitzvah, right? When they, when they turn 12 or 13, I believe it is, that they, there's this big celebration and the young men are, are ushered, I guess, into manhood. They're recognized as young men. In our Baptist life, we call it the age of accountability where there's a period in time where we recognize that these kids are understanding, should be understanding what we're teaching them. But he says, I've kept all of these things. But notice what Jesus does then. After he approaches this man with the law, after he says, hey, if you'll do these things, or when the young man's saying, can I inherit eternal life? Let me back up a little bit. You know what he's saying? What can I do to earn it? What can I do to earn 
this gracious gift of salvation. What can I do? And we need to be careful about that because if it's all me, I get to boast about it, Brother James. I can say, I figured it out. I figured out the secret code to the gospel and I get the prize for that. But notice in verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 21. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him. Now, beholding him. That's not just a quick glance. That's not just a side eye look. That's looking intently at him with the intention of having a conversation with him. That's setting his gaze upon him. But he didn't just look at him. He didn't just set his gaze upon him. What did he do? It says he loved him. Now, in the Bible, you will not find love as a passive word. Love is an action word. Love causes the one who is displaying love to another to do something. Jesus said of His disciples, they will know you're My disciples if you have love one to another. For instance, My love for you as a pastor is to rightly divide the word of truth so that I will not withhold anything from preaching to you. I preach the full counsel of God because I love you. Jesus is looking at this young man and he loves him. By the way, if we're going to proclaim the gospel to people, we lovingly need to confront sin as it is part of our nature. But notice verse 21. As Jesus is looking at him, gazing upon him, and loves him, What does he do? He gives him exactly what he needs, not what he wants. And Jesus says, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell your possessions, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up thy cross, and follow me. Whoa. You mean, if I sell everything I have, I give everything away, and I live in poverty as these other people live in poverty, then I can go to heaven? Man, that seems almost fair, does it not? That you would sell every single... Could, could you do that? If Jesus Christ Himself came to you, looked at you face to face and said, sell everything you've got, would you be willing to do that? Would you forsake all? If He said, forsake your family, forsake everything you have, pick up your cross and follow Me, would you do that? Folks, that's what salvation really is, as we'll see here in a little bit. It is forsaking all these earthly things and taking up the cross and following Jesus in obedience. Verse 22, what a tragedy. It says that he was sad at this saying. Why? Because he had great possessions. He didn't just have a nest egg that he was building up to retire on. He had great possessions. Possessions. You think of someone in our in our world that has great possessions. You think of someone who lives in great opulence. You think of someone who lives in great luxury. Not just a nest egg that they can retire comfortably, but they've got massive wealth built up. We would probably call those guys billionaires. But then Jesus addresses the disciples. Verse twenty three. He looks round about, saith unto the disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? What he's not saying is that 
people of wealth will not be in heaven. That's not what he's saying. He says, how hardly. Now, why is that? Why is it hard, harder for someone who has all this abundance of riches to enter into heaven? Because it takes faith and trust in Christ alone. And those who have this great abundance of wealth, you know what they're trusting in? Their riches. They're trusting in their, their uh, temporal treasures that they have built upon this earth. Verse 24, And the disciples were astonished. They were out of their mind. But Jesus answered again. He says the same question. How difficult is it for a rich man to enter into the kingdom? Notice what he says then. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to answer or to enter into the kingdom of God. If you've done any type of sewing and quilting and things of that nature, you know how hard it is to get that thread through the eye of a needle. Right? I mean, it's impossible. Almost impossible. You got to maybe wet it a little bit, get it where it'll stick out and try to get it through that needle. Imagine trying to put a camel through that needle eye. How difficult is that? Outside of a miracle from God, it cannot happen physically. And then look what it says again in verse 26. And they were astonished out of measure. So first they're astonished. Now they're, 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 their mind is blown. I mean, it's just a, a, a mind blown, right? And then they ask this question, this tragic question. Who then can be saved? If that rich man cannot enter into the kingdom, the rich man who kept the law from his youth up, which he didn't keep the law actually, he offended in one point, and it was this. Actually, he offended in two points. Number one, this talking about selling your property, selling those things, giving all those things away, and taking up the cross and following Jesus. What does the law hang on? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, and thy mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. See, love your neighbor as yourself. You'll do things for them, right? You will help the poor. You will help those who are in need. But to love those treasures, to love those things more than you love God, how tragic is that? How tragic is it to trust more in those riches than in the sovereign, eternal God who created all things? Let me put it more plain and simple maybe even. How is it to trust in your own righteousness than to trust in the righteousness of Christ? Say, Brian, you don't understand. I've been in church all my life. 32 years in church, folks. Before I saw my self-righteousness. Well, you don't understand. I dot, dot, dot. Whatever you're going to tell me is negated by the righteousness of Christ. Because righteousness is perfect obedience to the law. Of which you and I cannot do. And as we saw with this young man. Oh, he had, he had not committed adultery. He had not stolen. He had honored his mother and father. But what he had failed to do and what he and himself could not do is love the Lord thy God with all his heart, his soul, and his mind. I would venture to say this morning, there's some of us in here this morning that we don't love God with all of our being. And that may be indicative of your unbelieving status. That may be indicative of your unregenerate situation that you were in. That you cannot muster that up on your own. 
So then let me ask this question. Not only who then can be saved, but how then can man be saved? How is it that we are saved? How is it that we are brought into relationship with Jesus Christ? How is it that we are made a new creation in Christ? Understand that salvation is is a comprehensive term that describes the, the whole experience, meaning from regeneration, from when someone is born again, to glorification when they stand with Jesus face to face and receive that glorified body. That's what we're talking about in salvation. It's not that I prayed this prayer and man, whew, I escaped hell by the skin of my teeth. That's not what we're talking about. When we talk about salvation, we're talking about that whole experience of Christianity, that whole experience of being redeemed from our unbelieving and our unregenerate status to being brought into communion with Jesus Christ, to being brought into relationship that was severed at the fall. And here's what we need to understand. It begins with the understanding that man is utterly and radically depraved. That we are sinners at nature. David said in Psalm 51, In sin did my mother conceive me. It does not mean, it did not mean that his mother was in sin when she gave, when she conceived him. It means that upon conception that his life began and that he had the sin nature from that point forward. That is what Adam and Eve brought upon humanity. We are radically depraved. This is seen if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Notice verse 1. And you have He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. Do you know what God told Adam and Eve when He told them don't partake of this particular fruit? What was it He said? Don't eat of it or you will die. Did they die physically immediately upon taking of that fruit? No. They died spiritually. Their that relationship that they were in, that they would meet in the cool of the day with God, was severed. Matter of fact, God went looking for them at the time of the day that they met. And what were they doing? To hide Right? That's what depraved, unregenerate man does. He runs from God. He does not seek after God. He runs from God. And God... Getting a picture of the the cross way back in Genesis. Took their their fig leaves that they clothed themselves with, their own self-righteousness. Clothed them in animal skins. A picture of the lamb that would be slain in the Old Testament. And ultimately a picture of Christ on the cross. Signifying that your righteousness is not good enough. You need the righteousness of another. Our depravity. You have He quickened. The word quickened means to be made alive. Here's the reality of the unregenerate, the unsaved, the lost. You're not on life support in ICU or CCU. You're in the morgue. You're on a stainless steel table in a cooler where dead bodies go, spiritually speaking. And it is the power of God 
that quickens you, that makes you alive, that grants you faith to believe the gospel, that, that works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned. Some have sinned. All have sinned. Every single individual in here, from baby Terrell to the oldest one in this room, were sinners. Now, she hasn't yet learned how to work out her depravity to the degree that some of us have, right? Oh, but give her time. She will. You know what Brant and Katie won't have to teach her? How to be a sinner. You know what I didn't have to teach my kids? How to be sinners. You know why? Because it's in their nature. Just like my mom and dad didn't have to teach me how to be a sinner. Just like my grandparents didn't have to teach my parents how to be sinners. It's in our nature. It, I mean, look, if you've got kids, if you had kids, if you, look, we're going to have our grandbabies next weekend. You know what? They're depraved little wretches. They're sinners. They're going to want their, sometime next weekend, maybe in the church, I don't know, but they're going to want to have their way and they're going to throw a fit. Why? Because they're selfish. Because they're sinners. That's the, that's the case of man. And I, look, we look at cute little babies and we think, oh, well, how in the world can they be a sinner? They're a sinner. That's in their nature. They will, they will try to get their way. Romans 3.10. There's none good. Answering the question of the young, rich, rich young ruler, there's none good. Well, we throw that term around, right? Like we, we talk about someone. We, I say it all the time, talking about somebody. Man, they're, they're good folks, good people. A good man, a good lady. And not according to the Bible, right? Not according to the Scripture. There's none good. There's none, and it goes on to say there's none that understands. There's none that seeks after God. You get in the picture of our, of our desperate situation? Are you getting the, de- the picture of how desperate in need of someone else's righteousness that we are? That we don't have our own righteousness? And by the way, Isaiah says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. I hate to be so blunt, but that filthy rag that it's talking about literally means a woman's menstrual rag. That's what that's talking That's how disgusting it is to God. How your righteousness, that's how disgusting it is to God. That's our condition, folks. It seems hopeless, does it not? But God commendeth His love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. You see, the sacrifice of Christ, though, is really a moot point if He didn't come out of that tomb. That suffering that He done, that per- if He had not perfectly obeyed the law, we don't celebrate last week. We don't get to celebrate the resurrection. Matter of fact, we have no reason to gather on Sundays if Jesus Christ did not come out of that tomb. And yet Jesus, in His life, accomplished, fulfilled the whole law. He, as a matter of fact, He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. In other words, He came to do what the first Adam re- did not do, that neglected to do, and that was obey God. One sin, it cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, and it has cast humanity into a sea of depravity. And here we are, thousands of years later, and we see the world falling around, down around us. We see depravity on every corner. You don't, you don't believe we're depraved? Watch the news. Watch the news. 
You don't believe in the you don't believe in the sinfulness of man. Watch the news. You, you see it everywhere. I'll give you a for instance. I don't I, I, y'all heard me pray for him, James Coates. You want to see depravity? Depravity is refusing to refusing to allow people to have the rights that hasn't been granted by the government that's been granted by God, and that is the right to life, the right to live our life. And you know what that evidence says? As Christians, that we gather as Christians. We get to gather and worship God. But depravity is seen as when a crooked and wicked government will set not one fence up, but two barriers of fence around a church to keep the people from gathering to worship God. That's depravity. Depravity will, will, um, will uh, want people to be able to kill their babies. It will advocate for abortion. How wicked is that that you would cheer on someone taking the life that's not theirs to take? Folks, that's the condition that we are in. And Jesus accomplished this righteousness that we need by living a sinless life. We see this in Hebrews chapter 5. But the only merit acceptable to God is Christ's merit. I don't mean this quite literally, but if you come to Christ, to God, and you say, here's my righteousness, and it's not Christ's righteousness, He's going to laugh you out of heaven. And it won't be so laughable because you'll spend an eternity in hell. Because you're dependent on your own goodness to get you in favor with God. Even the faith by which a man believes in Christ is a gift from God. And folks, that's what it takes Right? Faith, trust, dependence upon God for that righteousness that is not our own. And it's not of your own doing. We see that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 that I quote all the time. It's given on the grounds of Christ's righteousness. Turn to Philippians chapter 1, if you will. The faith that it takes to believe in the gospel is not that something that you conjure up within yourself. It's not something that you can even be coerced into exercising. The Bible says it is a gift from God. It is granted by God to unbelievers. And the evidence of that is that you begin to call on Him in repentance. We'll get to it in a moment. Philippians 1.29, look what it says. For unto you it is given... That word given means to be gifted, to be granted. In the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer. You know what is a mark of a Christian's life? Suffering, affliction, tribulation, persecution. But if it's been, it's been given, not our own merit, but on behalf of Christ's merit, on behalf of His righteousness... You see this in 2 Peter as well, if you'll turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 1. Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them who have obtained like Precious faith. That word obtained there has behind it the idea of casting lots. 
You say, well, if I get lucky and roll seven, I get into heaven? Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's a little bit more, maybe even more simple than that. It's not just that you're rolling the dice. The Bible says in Proverbs 16, it's every decision is of the Lord. Man rolls the dice, man casts it in his lap, but every decision is of the Lord. And when you think about it on this, that it was the, lots were cast to choose the high priest. Lots were cast to choose the priest, and it was God's doing of what priest was selected to offer that sacrifice. Even the faith that we have to believe or it takes to believe the gospel is not of our own doing. It's not of our own coercion. It is of God. Our situation is desperate, folks. I, I don't know about you, but man, when, I, when God, when I, my sin, my self-righteousness was revealed to me, it was desperate. I, ever, anybody who, who, who is, has been in a situation that seems hopeless, this is a thousand times worse, a million times worse. Eternity hangs in the balance on this. And as the Philippian jailer called out to Paul, what must I do to be saved? What did Paul say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Here's the, here's the deal. If you profess faith in Christ, bring forth fruit that's worthy of repentance. You say, who are you to judge? John told the, the, the Pharisees, he said, bring forth fruit, he called them a, a group of vipers, that you bring forth evidence worthy of your salvation that you're claiming. Folks, I, th- this, this salvation, this faith, is not something that we hide and keep to ourselves. It, it's not a light that we put a bushel over, right? What good does the light do? If you've got a flashlight and you put your hand over it, what good does it do? It ain't going to do you no good out here. You might step on a snake, might run across a skunk or something like that. If you don't have a light, see where you're going. doesn't do you any good. So to say that you have faith, and as James says, you don't have works, your faith is dead. To say that I have faith and there's no physical evidence of it, is to actually give evidence of a false profession. Now, if you say, Brian, I remember, man, God saved me, I may, I, I'll probably become backslid. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent. Re- repent. That's a mark of a Christian is daily repentance. Repent and, ter- repent and turn back to Christ. And you say, well, I, I'm unsure. I've heard you talk about the gospel. I've been in church my whole life, but I'm just unsure about this. I'm going to give you some very simple instructions. It would be easy for me to coerce you into a prayer. It would be easy to do that. And I could give you a false assurance of what you've done. And I could even call my preacher buddies and say, hey, guess what? We had some people saved in church this morning. But I don't have the authority to do that. I don't have the authority to do that. Let's go back to Lamentations chapter 3. Let's show you something. Now let me say this. There is a prayer of faith. There is a prayer of repentance. If you are unsure, let me give you some instructions. Especially if you live out here in the country. There's plenty of pasture land. There's plenty of woods. You can even walk up and down the road and be by yourself because there's hardly any traffic most days on 103. Get along with God. Get along with God. 
You get along with God and you call out to Him for faith. You call out to Him to show you your sin. John said in, six, in, in John 16, 8, when the Spirit has come, what will He do? Convict you of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. When the Spirit comes inside of you, you know what He does? He first shows you your sin. That's the first fruits of the Spirit that the Bible talks about. He will show you your sin. And it will be unmistakable. But the next thing He will show you is that you need the righteousness of Christ. You need the righteousness of Christ. But He will also show you that there's eternal judgment. And that's a reality that we're faced with. There is eternal judgment. When you close, There's been a lot of deaths here lately. A lot of people that y'all have known, that I haven't been here long enough to know, but people you've known, maybe people you've been close to, there's been a lot of deaths here lately. You know what didn't end when those people were put in the ground? They either woke up when they closed their eyes in death, face to face with Jesus, or they woke up in, in hell. Eternal judgment. I don't know if they profess to be Christian. I don't know those people. I'm not going to make that judgment. That's, that's the two options that that's available. Heaven or hell? Joy or misery? Eternal punishment or eternal bliss? Look at Lamentations chapter 3. Go back to verse 22 where we read earlier. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Let me tell you something. You know why there are pedophiles still walking around on this earth? Believe it or not. Believe it or not. It is of God's mercy. You know why there are still unbelievers walking around on this earth? Mercy, pity, compassion. Verse 23. And because His compassions fail not, especially towards His own. His compassions don't fail us. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. You mess up today, guess what? God's mercies are new tomorrow. His compassions are new tomorrow. Look at verse 24. The Lord is my portion with my soul, therefore will I hope in Him. Verse 25, The Lord is good unto them that wait for Him to the soul that seeketh Him. You want to know another evidence of salvation? Do you seek Him? Do you seek Him daily? Do you seek Him often? Verse 26, It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Let me address the believers first. If you say, Brother Brian, beyond the shadow of a doubt, I see the evidence of God's grace in my life. Folks, there's hope around the corner. We will one day soon have this glorified body. We won't have aches and pains. We won't have sickness. And best of all, we won't have sin to deal with any longer. So we hope, we wait. For the unbelieving, it says that it is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. To the unbeliever, go to God. Get along with Him. Ask Him to see your sin. Ask Him to show you the righteousness of Christ. Ask Him to grant you faith to believe in Christ alone. You say, well, I've done that. Keep doing that. You know what wait means? Wait means you're not in a hurry for something. Wait means you patiently wait for Him. And let me tell you something. When God does that, it will be unmistakable. 
It will be as you are a new man. Look, I went to church for 30, I think it was 33 years until realizing I was lost and God saved me. And having been in church and just knew all the things to do, knew the right things, I said, man, I, I, could fool, I had my pastor fooled. And people would come up to Tiffany and say, what happened to him? Look, I had everything figured out. I knew exactly what to do to trick people. And yet, God's grace showed there was some change that took place in the life of Brian Thomas. It will be unmistakable. You know what? There ain't nobody going to have to coerce you into a prayer of repentance. God will show that to you and reveal that to you and you'll fall on your face before God and you will repent of your sin. You will not have to be coerced to come down the aisle to make a public profession of faith through baptism. You won't have to be coerced into doing that. Why? You will readily speak of the grace of God that has been abundantly clear in your life. And then from that point forward, you're walking and conforming to the image of Christ. It's good. And a man hope and patiently wait for the salvation of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great privilege it is to say that we have experienced Your grace in a saving way. How great it is, God, that You take away those desires that we once had and You replace those with new desires. And God, even how great is it that we daily fight the good fight of faith and we daily fight against the sin and we see the grace that You so display towards us in that fight. And God, how precious is it when we see another unbeliever fall upon their face before You, cry out to You in faith and repentance. For it is in that we see the evidence of Your Spirit within them. Father, I pray that You would do just that today, in the hours to come, in the days to come, and in the weeks to come. Would You manifest Yourself to the unbelieving here? Would You give us boldness and courage to confront sin with the Gospel of Jesus Christ? May You be glorified and we would not boast in ourselves. We praise you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.